This podcast is funded and supported by Wild Common, an additive-free agave spirits company bringing you some of the finest tequila and mezcal on earth. Our goal is to help give transparency to the consumer, provide a cleaner spirit, and support sustainable methods of production with the families that we work with in Mexico. Our product should be available summer 2020. We will keep you posted. Salud. Welcome to the first episode of the Wild Common Podcast. My name is Andy Barden. I'm the host and the founder of Wild Common Agave Spirits. This is my first guest that I've had on the show. And fortunately, we recorded this just before the whole COVID-19 outbreak. So we were able to sit in person in my office here in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, look each other in the eye and have a good conversation. My first guest name is Hadley Hammer, and she's a professional skier who grew up in Jackson and is now living in Innsbruck, Austria. Um, she has done all sorts of things and over the years grew up rock climbing, ski racing, Nordic skiing, and then sort of took off for college and got a bachelor's in hospitality and economics in New England. She lived in DC for a while working in hospitality earned uh, her full sommelier status before the mountains of the West pulled back at her heart and and she came back and fell back in love with skiing. And then Hadley uh, entered a, a couple ski competitions and was able to actually qualify for the Freeride World Tour, which is an incredible accomplishment in and of itself, and then went on to stand on podiums on the Freeride World Tour. Uh, that earned her attention from big name sponsors like the North Face and Teton Gravity Research, uh, which then kicked off her her film career, filming professional big mountain skiing. Um, her, her debut was in Teton Gravity Research's film, Tight Loose, which came out in 2016. And she shredded all over British Columbia, Bolivia, Alaska, Norway, the Alps, you name it, all over the world. Hadley's vision now is is wholly focused on skiing big mountains and big lines in big mountains uh, for film and and for photos. She's sort of tapping into her free skiing background um, as well as her climbing roots, combining her two passions to apply those skill sets to some of the most challenging mountains in both Wyoming and in Austria. The last couple of years, Hadley's been deeply in love with one of the best climbers ever named David Lama. In 2013, David was named one of National Geographic's Adventurers of the Year for his free climbing ascent of Cerro Torre, which is a notoriously difficult mountain down in Southern Patagonia. Tragically, on April 16th, 2019, David, along with his two climbing partners, were caught in an avalanche on Howe's Peak in the Canadian Rockies and all of them did not survive. And so Hadley and I talk about adventure and risk, loss, um, her love for David, and it's sort of a far-reaching conversation. We go into all sorts of things. So, And just a quick note, we recorded this on March 9th, right before the whole COVID social distancing thing happened all the travel restrictions, et cetera, et cetera. So if it sounds like a world that you used to know, that's why. I hope you enjoy listening into the conversation that Adley and I have. Stick with it. Uh, we're sort of chit-chatting in the beginning and then 
get a little bit more in depth as the the podcast goes on. So without further ado, my interview with Hadley Hammer. Enjoy. All right. Well, Hadley Hammer, welcome to the Wild Common Podcast. Thank Thanks you. for coming on. Thank you. Uh, today is Monday, and both of us were um, discussing Monday the 9th about the coronavirus and the market tanking this morning. You've been traveling a lot. Um, I've been traveling a ton. And while that's, I think, a um, not a pessimistic perspective, I think that's a, a realistic perspective. Would you describe yourself as an optimist about the future, or would you describe yourself as a, a pessimist? Um, <laughs> I read this really nice thing in a children's book, actually, this morning. And the question was, are you a half glass full or half glass empty kind of person? And the response was, I'm just glad I have a glass. And I resonate a lot with that. I don't know. Sometimes I'm really sad about the future and sometimes I'm really happy. But in general, I just think, okay, I'm here and this is the experience and I'm going to have my experience and control it as much as I can, which is almost none. And I don't know what I would never pretend to know what's going to happen to the world as a whole. Well, let's jump back when, when you first walked in, you were saying something because I offered you a, a juice from a local juicery. It's a kale, cucumber, lemon type deal. Um, and you said that your stomach was a little messed up because you've been in Europe, but then you came back here and you think it's the food. Let's talk about maybe a system that might be working correctly, which is the food system in Europe. Yeah, for sure. My stomach hurts so bad here. And I've noticed that in Europe, at least where I'm living in Austria, I go to the grocery store every day, if not every two days. Like I never food shop for a long period of time besides, sure, I'll buy staples like milk and eggs that will sit in my fridge. But what I eat on a daily basis is I pick up from the store. And then you notice when you go to the store in Europe, and it's still a chain grocery store that I'm going to, they're out of some things. Like one day I'll go and really be craving like blueberries and there won't be any. And for me, that's a really good sign that they're stocking the store in a capacity where things run out, things aren't sitting there, things are really seasonal, and maybe it's a bummer that I didn't get my blueberries that day, but overall, that's a sacrifice that I think is better for everyone on a whole, that I don't get what I want. And I find that I'm, my body just feels like it's processing the food. Where here, I feel like I eat stuff and it's just sitting in my body. Do you notice specifically with grains in particular? Yeah. The differences in like breads, beer? Big time. Yeah. I mean... Pastries? In, pastries. <laughs> in Austria, for breakfast, I eat two slices of bread. And they're a dark bread. They're fresh. I go to the bakery every morning. I really like the women in the bakery there. And it fuels me. And I come here and I can't figure out what to eat that can last me for a few hours. And I also notice the sugar content in the States is insane. <laughs> like I, my mom and dad came to visit me at Christmas and they brought me a bunch of treats that they thought I would like, which was super sweet of them. Like thing like Justin's nut butter peanut butter cups and I ate it and I was my mouth like puckered from the sweetness and those are like organic and natural and less sweet than say a Reese's and you realize like 
we must put so much sugar in things. And I think it's because our food system is on these mass scales and nothing actually tastes that good. And we have to add sugar to it because we don't like let fruits and vegetables ripen properly. We don't let them grow properly. They're in bad soil. And it just like, I don't know, water falls down. I think the food system in the U S is completely broken. So I was, I was just in Munich, Germany, and we were supposed to overlap, but schedules for whatever reason didn't line up because of photo shoots on your end and then some more travel on my end. Um, so we'll have to redo that adventure. But um, I noticed the beer over there made me feel different. And somebody in broken English at actually rock climbing gym I went to, I went bouldering and it's at this amazing gym. And afterwards they've got pretzels and beer and a little place you can like snack and socialize with friends. And so I, I bought a bottle of, um, it was a Hellas beer and they started to explain the purity laws in Germany that only allow you to add three ingredients to your beer. I think it's, and I'm not a brewer, but I think it's water hops and, you know, barley or, or whatever it may yeah. be. And, uh, and that goes, you know, the same with like all of their grain crops, like breads, right? They're not allowed mm-hmm. to use GMO. Is mm-hmm. that right? I believe it's, they're not allowed to. Food is food. It's real. <laughs> like, if you have flour, it's flour. If you have beer, it's beer. It's. I remember working at a coffee shop here once, and when the Cisco order came, and like a box of apples came, and the box had an ingredients list on it, and you think, well, it's a box of apples. What other ingredient should be here? And the list of like preservatives and waxes and pesticides that were listed, you're like, wait, I just wanted an apple. Like an apple should just be an apple. Yeah. And it can't be with how the food system works in the U.S. Because Because of scale. Because of scale and because of how grocery stores are and that they have to remain shelf-stable. And then people buy them and they want their food to last for a week and a half because they only grocery shop once a week. But I think it's like, you know, for me, knowing – so I had a beer and then I went out to dinner and I had another beer that was a Hefeweizen. And I slept like a baby, like slept the whole night, woke up the next morning, albeit some jet lag. Um, but if I have a couple domestic beers here, I I feel like inflamed, I uh-huh. guess. And I also wake up in the middle of the night with like full of energy. So that's a spike in my glycemic response, essentially my body dealing with all this extra sugar. And they add GMO corn and they add flavor additives <laughs> and like... Science. <laughs> yeah, right. But it'd be nice to know or at least have some level of transparency on the label like the ingredients yeah i think transparency and if you're going to have additives it should tell you what's in it at least from a consumer perspective i think yeah absolutely or i don't know i think and i am not a scientist or a nutritionist or have any knowledge behind this but the inflammation is what i feel the most being back here is like this bloated weighted heaviness that i don't get there and my like exercising is the same my routines are the same my water consumption's the same and the only thing i can think it is is the food and i think my body just can't process natural flavor number 65 and so it's just sitting somewhere and then will typically or i will typically deal with that as I travel by drinking a bunch of coffee, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which then spins out even further. Mm-hmm. And we've connected about that in the past where I was, um, I had a back injury 
whatever it was a couple of years ago and we connected about that and that led us to the topic of inflammation and and coffee became part of the conversation you said dude back off <laughs> drink some green tea um and that also led to a conversation about adrenal fatigue. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with it? Or, yeah. or I can give some background context as to like what I knew about it. Um, and, then, and then we had a conversation. My, an ex-girlfriend of mine in Hawaii um, would go surf these really big waves. And then uh, she noticed that at least on a monthly basis that she would experience some adrenal fatigue just from her estrogen levels and so during a certain period of the month she wouldn't go surf these big waves she would rest and protect i guess i would say um her body and allow that sort of level to or that imbalance to to come back down before she would go push herself to the extreme um can you talk a little bit about your experience like competing and shooting needing to perform in relation to adrenal fatigue and caffeine use and all yeah. this stuff because I feel like they're connected. <laughs> they are. I, you know, I think for me, adrenal fatigue happened because I was, I think I'm a pretty calm person and fairly level-headed. And despite all that, my body was picking up all these, all this information from the environments I kept putting myself in, which were inherently pretty dangerous pretty stressful because there's a performance expectation. And can you explain for listeners who don't watch TPR yeah. videos <laughs> what, what, I'm, what I do? What that looks like. Yeah, so whether I'm competing or now filming or going on expeditions, it's going into the big mountains and I take my own I take responsibility for my own self out there. And that means knowing the snowpack, knowing the mountains, knowing the route. So I'm putting all the stress of like collecting all this information months before I'm preparing at the gym. So I'm lifting and running in the hills and trying to get strong. And then a day might look like getting up super early, like between three and 6 a.m. hiking, say like a few days ago, 6,000 feet plus and skiing down with a camera pointing at me. So the expectation is that I ski at my highest level all the while being in big, dangerous mountains and all those things I think even if I can approach them very calmly and with preparation I'm starting to realize like your natural body there's a lot more going on behind the scenes that I was recognizing of being scared or being nervous and I can work through those things but they still had an impact on my body getting tired my mind being tired I, they're the same thing and I would finish a winter and just be fried and like you can't make basic decisions after a while and you're just deep, like deeply, deeply exhausted and you want to keep going. Like my season is all year. I think I pretty much just don't get on snow in July. And I realized spending all year that I was just draining my tank and hiding it with like coffee use or sugar or food and trying to like maintain something that actually required like deep, deep rest. And so some of this is like real danger. Mm -hmm. Like you're going to jump off of a 40 foot cliff with 25 miles an hour of momentum, stomp the landing and then maybe another one. Or in the case of Mount Moran, is that the uh -huh. 6,000 foot mountain? 
um, there's objective danger, which is um, you or your partner could make a mistake. There are things out of your control, like rockfall, avalanches, et cetera, et cetera. So some of that is, um, I think, a natural fear, which is healthy. Mm-hmm. But then it sounds like you were also carrying some stress in the form of anxiety or uh, just knowing that you're going to have to go do these things and that anticipation in and of itself caused some stress. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I think that causes stress. And I think, you know, skiing is really an interesting, big mountain skiing is an interesting sport because to me it's athletic, but I've always used it as a form of self-expression. And I think that relates more to art. And it's a funny thing to combine your self-expression to have your self-expression be filmed and then judged after being filmed. And I think that was something that was probably more weighing out of anything was here I am. I feel like myself the most when I'm skiing and it's the way that I express myself and I'm subjecting myself to people judging my own expression and that I think is exhausting. Yeah, <laughs> it is not rec- Now that I recognize it, it's actually a little bit easier to be like, Oh, okay. It's being judged, but I actually don't really care what people think of it. But you have to care to some degree because it's your livelihood. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and so as you know, on the one hand, I'm running this podcast and, you know, initiating this, this new brand, this new business in the spirits market, um, for the last 10 years as a photographer, and director, my work gets judged. And, and I can relate in the sense that it, it does matter that it looks good mm-hmm. because that's what you're hired to do. It does matter that you're pushing it. It does matter that something that somebody hasn't seen before, or it's in my case, um, you know, one image that tells a whole story and makes the client happy. And so that for me, I, I still get nervous after 10 years uh, or 15 years the night before a photo shoot. And I think that's good. Mm-hmm. It means I care. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think there's an interesting way of thinking of that. It's one of, I believe, I hope I don't mess this up. I think it was a David White poem, but he talks about one of his friends or John O'Donohue. I can't remember that. He doesn't care precisely because he cares so much and that really resonates with me is not caring about the judgments of others doesn't mean that you don't care about the art or yourself. It means that you allow yourself to like deeply care about what you're doing without worrying about the outside mirror. Yeah. And I think the, the more you let go, the better that form of creativity or expression becomes Mm -hmm. and that's the same with skiing yeah yeah you can't creativity and judgment can't occur at the same time i believe i strongly believe What, what do you mean like you can't be in the act of being creative while judging yourself or another person i think i think they they fight against each other yeah i think when i'm at my best it whether it's climbing or skiing and shooting photos, whatever it may be, I'm almost observing myself Mm -hmm. and that happens seven times a year, 12. (laughs) If my clients are listening all the time, no, (laughs) 
<laughs> but I think that um, the act of becoming the observer and allowing yourself to step back and completely be present in the moment and to just let go and to allow your body to just perform yeah. and, and understand that as you point it down a kuar in your case, or if you're climbing without a rope, um, you just flow. Yeah. Because observation and curiosity lead to creativity judgment like i feel if anyone like if i was to say something judgmental to you right now your human reaction like your body's reaction would be to like tense a little bit and almost like to take the blow (laughs) and then we all know when we're performing our best athletically but also artistically that there is like freedom and flow and movement and so i think that's what i think about with how I judge my own skiing or how I look at my skiing is an, from a place of observation or curiosity. Do you then reflect on it afterwards? I mean, you'll watch tape and see how you can improve or, sure. or use video as a tool to, and I didn't grow up ski racing, yeah. but use video as a tool to understand that your pole plant kind of looks funny and yeah. you'll become more efficient <laughs> if you drop your shoulder. Uh-huh. Do you Definitely. still do that? Yeah. I do that with every shoot. Like I like working with photographers that let me see every frame and then that way I can look at the whole, t- the turn as a whole, not just like the pretty turn that everyone wants where you're like deep in the arc. Cause that's actually like the least important part of your turn at that point. And yeah. So, but it's really from a place of like, I'm curious if I can do better or different. Yeah. Or if you crash, you yeah. learn why. Yeah. Or if on a line, your slough catches you and knocks you off your feet. I think it's a valuable tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ray Dalio, the economist, wrote a book or hedge fund manager uh, called Principles. And he has one principle in there that says pain plus reflection equals progress. Yeah. And I think, you know, at least in the creative pursuit, um, there's an element of holding on tight and learning and reflecting. And then there's also an element of sort of like letting go. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like that quote. Um, so let's get back to Europe. Can you talk about Europe? Yeah. Where, where you are? <laughs> I love Europe. Or the name, what, what, let's start, what's the name of the bakery? Uh, I go to the Baker Ruitz, which is not, it's also a chain and they're all over Austria and all over Innsbruck, but they have really amazing bread and, you know, croissants are some of my favorite food and maybe the one thing that's missing from Austria is a good croissant, but they make up for it in other ways. And so, I can always just zip to France. <laughs> so where where are you right now? I'm in Innsbruck, which is in Tyrol, which is in Austria. And I've seen um, this winter in particular, based on your suntan on your face <laughs> and rock climbing photos that you've been posting. Yeah. Not a lot of snow. Um, There actually is a... You know, last year they had an incredible season, and this year it's less so. It There's been some rain events, so lower down it's not very snowy, but up high you can still find snow. But what's really nice about Europe is the access to things is so much quicker than, say, here. And so what I can do is I can ski in the morning and like go into the into the mountains, get a pretty decent ski line in or multiple decent ski lines just because approaches are smaller and then rock climb in the afternoon. (laughs) Decent. (laughs) Decent. You're being modest here. Decent is 
you know, maybe we can link some photos or something. But decent is some of the biggest mountains in the world, glaciated terrain, huge descents. I mean, it's like taking a tram to the top of the Grand Teton. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. It's like the infrastructure is already in place there, so that you can whether it's trams or chairlifts or even like the villages that are set back in the mountains that have roads to them. So for the people that live in Jackson, it's like having a road that goes like to the meadows. And so you're driving that first thousand, two thousand, three thousand feet. Yeah. However many meters that is. <laughs> and albinism over there, um, at least my experience in Chamonix and Verbier, um, it's it's just part of the culture. Yeah. Everyone does it and their grandfather did it. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just sort of the way people roll is that how you're seeing it over there? I mean, it's- yeah, it's like so deeply ingrained in the culture. It's really interesting to actually compare like your say my backyard in Austria and the Tetons here and the way that humans move through both is quite different. I mean, in the Tetons, you have really long approaches. For example, Mount Moran, we had to skin six and a half miles across a flat lake, then hike up, skin up the 6,000 plus vert ski back down and then hike back across that six and a half mile lake. Whereas in Europe, one of the days I skied because of a chairlift and some decent hiking, seven couloirs in one day. Wow. And it's just so different. And I respect and love both of them. (laughs) And I think what's nice about Europe is, and why so many great alpinists come out of Europe is because you can actually work more on your skill set because you're spending less time walking. Yeah. Well, it, like you're actually touching the rock or doing the rappels. You're just getting so much higher volume of technical skills in compared to here. I also think it's just an exposure thing, right? You're exposed early on to people doing all these groundbreaking mm-hmm. things. You get off the Agidumidi in, in Chamonix and you literally rappel. Yeah. <laughs> and you're at the start of a couar or you traverse on your skis and you're at these world-class ice lines mm-hmm. that can kill you. Yeah. But that becomes normal. Yeah, just kind of frightening. <laughs> it is kind of frightening. Um, so let's talk about why you're over there. Yeah, um, I am living in Austria because my boyfriend was from Innsbruck. He grew up there and he recently passed away last April. And, you know, our plan was for me to move in in July and he died in April. So that plan got was changed But for me, I mean, we talk about a lot of like knowing our bodies. I remember I went over there right after at some point within the first month to see his family and his friends. And I remember sitting in his apartment and thinking, okay, fuck, (laughs) what do I do now? Like my, the ground is gone beneath my feet. And, uh, I remember thinking through like, okay, I could why don't I just go to Chamonix where I've spent seven seasons? I have a lot of close friends there. I love the mountains. And that felt like, no, like I could feel my body get tense. And I thought that place is, as we just said, like you can die. You feel like you're going to die every day there and it becomes normalized, but it doesn't change the like inherent risks of those mountains is quite high. And then I was like, Oh, I'll go back. I guess I could just go back to Jackson and try to get my lease back and blah 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 and I threw up within like that next minute so 
So I thought, okay, well, maybe that's not a good idea either. And then I thought, what if I just stay here and stay with the plan? And it felt like this overwhelming sense of calmness. And so I packed, I got rid of all my things for the most part, took six duffel bags over there and have been living there ever since. And it's been a really healing, peaceful place for me to be. And so you're in David's apartment. I'm in David's apartment. Mm -hmm. It was like really adorable to see like he had just bought like my set of towels, a comforter for me, like the European style where everyone has their own comforter and was like creating this home for us. And it was nice to like follow through with that. And it's nice to be, you know, I think for some people, everyone does grief different. And for some people being surrounded by like the reminder of that person not being there is too much. But for me, it feels like a really nice place to be. And from the photos I've seen, it looks like there isn't a lot of stuff. It's like he only had what he needed. Is that yeah, how he rolled? Yeah. You know um, I, what I think there's a million things that I think David was incredible at, but one of the things he did as an alpinist was he was so fully aware of the consequence of what he was doing. And it's been something I've been thinking a lot about, you know, in the mountain community, we talk a lot about risk and there's been a lot of coverage lately. I think especially since like free solo came onto the market and all of a sudden it's a more general consumer topic people talk a lot about risk. There's articles about risk, risk, risk. Like what's the risk you're willing to take? And <laughs> I hate to break it to people, but you can't control a hundred percent of the risk. And I, David was really aware of that. And we had a lot of conversations about it. What he looked at was consequence. What is the consequence of me dying? Because I will control as much risk as I can. And he did. He was like for himself, for the people on the team like if he was in nepal or wherever and there was a father that was one of the filmers that he wouldn't allow the father to take a certain amount of risk like he was so aware of what was happening and but he looked at the consequence and he didn't have a lot of stuff you know we didn't have to sit there for days and days and days and go through like boxes and pounds of things which of course there's things that there was like just enough stuff for everyone to have a little reminder of him, which was so beautiful. But that's also how he climbed, right? Yeah. He would he would do groundbreaking solo ascents that weren't possible if you sometimes brought a partner. Yeah. Because it would slow you down or mm -hmm. a second rope or a tent. And he would just move ultra, ultra efficiently. I mean, yeah. one of the finest climbers in the world knew, minimal, <laughs> knew the benefit of minimalism. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, there was just no excess in his life at all, whether it was people or things or thoughts or ideas. And he, I mean, he would be so proud how he could say like, you know, I can sit all day and think about one topic. And he would, he would sit and think through one whole thing. I mean, I remember I called him once and asked him what he was doing and it was right before he died actually. And he said, you know, I've just been thinking all day cause they had a rest day. And I was like, okay, what have you been thinking about? And he was like, I've just been thinking like, what's wrong with us? Like I wanted to go through every aspect of our relationship and our personalities and figure out what was wrong. And I mean, 
I think most girls would be pretty offended by that, but it was part of the reason why I loved him because there was so much thought behind what he did. And luckily he came up also with nothing. So that was a nice did part too. Did he grow up Buddhist from his father's no. side? No, no, he was so his not. his father's from Nepal. His father's from Nepal and his mother is Austrian. And, you know, his mother is this pretty stoic, really strong, tough, rational, clear thinker. And you could see that in David. And his dad is hilarious, <laughs> Nepalese, emotional in, in what I think is a good way and really funny and lighthearted. And you could see that in David. And is his very father much as from well. the Sherpa community? Uh, yeah, he was. he's a llama. He was a trekking guide. That's how his parents met. Was his mom was over there just trekking. And they, yeah, very quickly got married and had David and started a life together. Wow. Um, so the risk thing, I, you know, that's come up for me over the years, for sure, as a result of the things that we do in the mountains, um, having lost more friends than I care to admit. Um, and my risk tolerance has changed for sure. I got um, buried in an avalanche in 2009. And then we've mutually had... 25, 35 plus people pass in the mountains doing what we do. Sometimes um, they were in environments that were cutting edge and they knew that risk and other times they were doing things that weren't necessarily cutting edge, but the consequences were very real and they still got caught off guard due to objective danger like we're mm -hmm. talking about. Um can you talk a little bit about like the avalanche and, and that whole process being an element that couldn't be controlled on that particular route? Yeah. I mean, I think there is a lot of factors at play for that particular day and that particular trip and that particular group. And I guess it's funny. I saw a lot of reaction from friends and and or climbers that I respect about what happened that day. And it certainly changed the way that I also read and look at accidents that have happened in the past because you realize that there's a lot more, in some ways, a lot more going on than people know. Like I was the last person to talk to David. I have a different view of what happened than say just a climber that was there doing something similar. And Or a climber reflecting yeah. after reading a snippet mm -hmm. and coming to a judgment. <laughs> yeah, the judgment thing is funny to me because I it's understand. Like you weren't there. Yeah, you weren't there. And you don't know. Mm -mm. And in hindsight, it's easy to say it yeah. shouldn't have been in that particular spot. But the amount of times that we've gotten away with it, barely, barely, barely. Yeah. And the avalanche just didn't occur. Mm -hmm. We don't know. Yeah. Right? Yeah, David would always say there's no such thing as good luck. There's only bad luck. And I kind of agree with that. And the climbers or the people that have put judgment on their decision making that, that day or their deaths, I almost laugh at a little bit because you can, in my opinion, it's them reconfirming to themselves that they make good decisions. Like I would never do that or they did something wrong. And you as a 
climber or a skier, you have to say that because you have to be convincing yourself that you do make good decisions out there to go to continue to go back out there. Because the reality is like there is like inherent dangers that are unavoidable that you have no control over. And as you said, most of the time we're probably getting away with it. And so in this particular scenario, and for those of you know, the listeners that aren't skiers or climbers, there are conditions in the mountains that uh, we can be aware of, such as avalanche conditions, layers in the snowpack that will increase the odds that it'll occur. There's also objective danger, um, like these big, almost overhangs of snow mm-hmm. called cornices or seracs that will hang above climbers routes and they break off periodically and you really can't control for that. Mm-hmm. Um, can you dive in a little bit more about sort of what caused the avalanche? We're not a hundred percent certain, but it was most likely a cornice failure. And when the cornice fell, then it c- triggers an avalanche, but they weren't buried super deep. So I don't think it was this like massive avalanche. I think the cornice broke off, swept them off the mountain. They were moving downwards at this point. And, One of the first lessons I learned on my first like big expedition was from Sam Ataman. He said, you know, you can survive an avalanche, but you can never survive a cornice failure. And I think we've seen that locally in this community in Jackson when Bryce died and of a cornice failing. And they're, yeah, they're so unpredictable and they need to be treated with a lot of respect. But it's one of those things that it's a hazard that you try to avoid, but sometimes it's unavoidable yeah. and you're just willing to put yourself under it or not. And I guess like one point I wanted to make is that they didn't go out in extreme avalanche conditions knowing that it was ultra, ultra, ultra dangerous. Yeah, it wasn't like for them. It also was like not a trip for like these like crazy first ascents. Like they just they were so David and Hans Jörg in particular were so Good. I mean, I think I could, I haven't really dove too much into what happened, but I think they climbed that route in like seven or eight hours. And the last people to do it, I think it took them five days or something. Like Mm -hmm. they're just so amazingly talented. And that trip wasn't about like, that trip was a preparation for a bigger, more dangerous trip. I think Hans had just competed something huge or completed something huge in Pakistan solo. Yeah, I think so. I I don't know. I can't remember. I mean, and again, as contact, these are like two of the best alpinists to ever live. Yeah, for sure. I mean, David, the way David moved in the mountains was like breathtaking. It was so beautiful. And yeah, I think the trip certainly wasn't to like prove themselves in the mountains in any way. And they all, I think if, the danger was high they all would have turned around like it wasn't a trip that they were all willing to die for and david's done things that he's been willing to die for and so when you go out now are you experiencing like a form of generalized anxiety because of the risk that you're taking or has your risk taking changed um i think i've always actually been really conservative with the decisions I make in the mountains. I think David was also incredibly conservative to a certain extent. It's hard because his talent like (laughs) probably skewed that conservation a little bit, but the funny thing about death or the beautiful thing about death is I think it actually sharpens your awareness 
And I feel more comfortable being in the mountains because I honestly feel more aware. I feel more aware of what's going on around me, like just constantly looking. I feel like I've kind of dumped a lot of baggage in my life and those things aren't really affecting me. And I feel really comfortable turning around always. So I, in some ways I feel like I've learned to be in the mountains in a better way from his death. And like I went, uh, this summer at some point I was in the Tetons with Kit Delorier. She was the one that skied off the seven summits originally. And I remember brushing, I was staying at my parents' house and I was brushing my teeth in the morning before we go. And I had this realization, like I could die today. Like that is the, that is an inherent part of going into the mountains is death. And like, did I make my bed is like, (laughs) are all these things like taken care of? And that's kind of back to what I said about David with consequence. Like most of, if he were to die, a lot of stuff was taken care of. He took care of his friends. He took care of his family. There's certainly some hiccups like finding passwords, but that's what I wish the mountain community focused more on. Actually, I take it back, not the mountain community, everybody. Like when you're born, you need to be prepared to die at any point. And when David died within that year and a half, I had lost nine friends and family and half were in the mountains, but half were also due to unexpected cancer at an early age, a healthy friend of both of ours. That is like the last person you think. One of the best athletes that I knew. Yeah. And like happy and healthy and then dead and I've or friends from suicide or whatever. And so it's not just the mountains. Like we're all going to die by the way. And I think like being realistic with that and setting your life up so that your passwords are somewhere like you have a DNR. If you want it, you have a will, the people that you love know that they love you. You don't have all this excess unfinished baggage. And, and so by make your bed, you mean also, you know, with the people that you care about mm-hmm. emotionally and, yeah. you know, communicating that to them and yeah. saying what needs to be said, making amends of, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah. Like I have my buttoning things up. Yeah. And then it's, it allows you to be quite free in your life too, because you can then do things with, you can move through your life with a lot more freedom because those things aren't weighing you down. I mean, the last text I have from David is just like, I can't wait to be in your arms. I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with you. I love you so much. Like all these really cheesy romantic things. And it made it so like watching other people go through loss where they have to like deal with the double grief of like not getting to say the things that they ever wanted to say. Like David and I said everything to each other. There's nothing I wouldn't like, I feel like I'd never said to him. And I think that's how I look at the decisions now that I make in the mountains. It's like the mountains are the place where we perform our craft or our art or whatever, but it's in the valleys where we live and where we need to be aware of the decisions we make. And I think we're taking too many risks in the valleys and it's easy to look at risks in the mountain because the, the feedback loop is shorter. You make a mistake in the mountains and you die or you get broken or whatever. And that feedback loop is quite quick and really easy to follow. But look at the risks you're taking on a daily basis, what you're eating, what you're saying to the people around you, like how you're treating yourself, what you're saying to yourself. I think there's way bigger risks taken here. They're just unconscious and the feedback loop is a lot slower. I also think that the lessons learned in the mountains 
aren't always re- reflected on. Like we're so quick to be like, I climbed a certain grade. Mm-hmm. What's next? Yeah. Or we completed an ascent. What's next? I don't think there's a reflection about, you know, process or um, maybe just like lessons in general of um, doing the best you can with what you have, bringing only what you need. Yeah. You know, reflecting on what you do have, not what you don't have. These are all things when you're climbing, like you internalize them and they become tools to allow you to then climb that next grade. But we don't, I think, come back and talk about that stuff over lunch. Yeah. That's my favorite. One of my favorite parts about David is that's what he did. I mean, that's what we would talk about. We would talk about these big things. We would talk about physics. We would talk about the moral like implications of people going to prison for rape. We would talk about all these like crazy conversations that we had. And I think he was the climber he was because of the person he was and lessons that he learned in the mountains were just reflected in his life, his daily life and his interactions with people. And yeah, I think we have to take, I think just reflection is missing. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, it's funny. I like think about, I've thought about a lot lately and maybe it's this big loop of like what people should be eating in the broken food system in the States. And it's, and then all of a sudden because the food system's broken, people gain weight because they have inflammation and then they get stressed and then they look to someone to tell them what to do. And they're, that's why all these like podcasts are really big of like Tim Ferriss or whatever of like how you become this person. America gets driven by these like how to guides. And I always laugh because I think, okay, the 10 best ways to achieve this are the 10 ways that you can be here. And on none of those like high performers lists, do they list? Oh, I like read someone else's list. Like they really, I feel like the people that I've, notice are the most successful in whatever ways you think success is are the ones that have tuned into their own selves and written their own list, written their own life. And they did that by reflecting a lot. And they know what they want. Yeah. And they know what feels good for them. Mm-hmm. And part of that is shedding the judgment of others for accomplishments yep, or whatever exactly. it may be. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so talk now, I guess you're in this space in Europe in this physical space, in this apartment. Um, I'm sure you still feel a presence there. Um, can you just talk a bit about loss? I think, you know, people our age, I'm 38, um, maybe haven't had friends pass from cancer or they potentially aren't climbers and they don't experience the the things that we do. Can you, can you just reflect a a little bit about that loss? Yeah. Um, (laughs) it's really painful. And like the, I feel like I'm still so fresh into it, but I, I think what I'm learning from loss is that like we tend to black and white the human experience and we tend to always have these things that are like opposing like happiness and sadness or 
strength and weakness, like vulnerability, being closed, whatever, uh, resilience or failure. And I think what I've learned the most from loss is that all those emotions exist at the same time. And I used to think that like, (laughs) I don't know, my hands are maybe like, what is this, a foot? I'm a... Yeah. Or so that like I bounce my emotional scale bounced between like the highs and lows were about a foot apart. And then when David died and also when David and I were in love or fell in love, like my ability to experience emotions, like that foot was blown into a meter. <laughs> yeah. And like the pain was was and still is so intense. And it's really physical and it feels as if I've been like someone's taken an ice cream scooper to the center of my chest and it really sucks. Like there's nothing, there's a lot of, I don't like to call them silver linings because I don't believe that anything is better than David being alive. Like all the, the personal growth and the lessons that I've gained from the result of him dying are I'm really thankful for, but I would give them all back. And I think it's interesting to experience grief. I mean, a lot lately, I feel like very misunderstood. And I think I understand why people don't understand me because it's hard without going through that experience of knowing like all these dualities are actually singular things like I can be happy and sad I cry every day and I also laugh every day or smile every day and I'm okay with carrying that and I'm okay being that way sometimes I feel crazy because it'll happen like so quickly but I notice it's almost harder for the people around me to accept that and then that's where like the judgment comes in around grief their judgment not you caring about their judgment yeah and it's less like, okay, I see why you don't understand, but like, you just have to, what I wish is that we were more willing as humans to just witness each other, like witness each other's pains, witness each other's happiness and let people go through the individual experience. And it's amazing how much advice I've been given and all these things. And you're kind of like, I lost the most important person in my life, but I didn't lose the agency I have over myself and my decisions. And when I need help, I'm a fully capable human of asking. And more so what I feel like I need is someone to just hold my hand when I'm crying or go with me when I go, want to go running really fast. Like just be a witness to this Mm. and when I feel ice, when I start to feel isolated, when grief part is hard, it's not when I like see a photo of David or have a memory of David. I feel like full of love in those moments. Like every time I see a photo of him, I smile because he's handsome. And it reminds me of like, I knew all of his smiles and what they all My meant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was, I was his lady. And like those parts aren't hard for me. What's hard is when like you, f- when people look at you as if you're like, a caged animal in a zoo and they don't know what to do with you. And I understand I have so much empathy there. Like it's intimidating to know what to say or to do, but there's like a lot of power in just like standing next to someone 
while they go through that. I remember, I think it was six months ago, um, I was on an airplane and I got up and I went to the bathroom. And when I came out of the bathroom, I made eye contact with you and neither of us had seen each other. Yeah, and we were flying from someplace really random, I think. Yeah, I can't remember where it was from. South America, maybe even. I don't know. Yeah, 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 I think it was. (laughs) And you just came running down the galley and you just hugged me and we didn't say anything. Yeah. I teared up. (laughs) (laughs) Because I knew you teared up. Um, But it was just sort of a quiet moment of being present with somebody else. Um, Our friend, our mutual friend, Sam Elias, had posted something, um, and I don't know who the quote was, I'll find it and I'll link to it, um, about being an observer and walking in the woods and how you can walk through the woods and you look at the trees and you say, well, that, that one sort of drooped over to the side. It doesn't look like it's got enough sun. That one over there looks really, really healthy. It's just, it's teeing off. It's got everything it needs. It's got water, it's got sun. It's really beautiful. This one over here, half of it's dead because it got struck by lightning. And you're simply observing it. You're not judging them. Yeah. I'm trying to fix them. <laughs> right. But as humans, we don't do that. No. Why? Uh, I mean, I think it comes from a nice place of like, we want to fix people we want to help people and those are beautiful things and like you have the word resilience written down on your paper and I it's funny I have kind of a hard time with that word because resilience is like always bouncing back or like returning to a state and I find with grief and loss it's like the more appropriate word is courage. Like I have the courage to wake up every day with this massive, massive fucking hole and this like nagging belief that life will never be as beautiful as it was with David. And I have the courage to, to live it anyways. And I think resilience is a funny word because it's inherent in humans. Like our bodies are resilient. They mend themselves. They scar up like, your body for whatever reason wants to keep living. And I think maybe that's why we try to help each other is because it's like that connection of like my body wants your body to feel good and happy. But I think when you go through grief, I'm okay with the darkness. Like there's a lot of beauty there and I'm okay with being completely different as a person now. Because it's just, I'm just experiencing being a human. (laughs) Like, I don't think I'm any really different. Like, I'm happy and sad throughout the day. Like, I'm wondering what life is. Like, those are all questions we all have, no matter if we lost the most important person or, or still have them. Like, those questions exist. And I feel like that pushing of, like, fixing other people or helping other people is saying there's what how it feels to me is someone saying there's something wrong with you because david died because you had to experience this now there's something wrong with you Mm. and that's so painful and offensive and hurtful (laughs) whereas someone just says like i've got you i have your hand it's saying like it sucks that this happened and you're gonna be okay you'll probably be pretty messed up but that's okay too and i think the misperception with at least you know the loss of friends that i've experienced is that um 
you don't heal you live with the pain yeah you know and at some point there will be a you know a soldier on this podcast and they'll give us different perspective on it but i guess i feel like um that's how i've dealt with it was first compartmentalizing it and trying to make it go away that didn't work (laughs) maybe maybe partying a little bit too much that didn't work and then by reflecting on the lessons i've learned from those individuals and being thankful for the time that i got to spend with them i have regret um a number of people i didn't say things that i wish i would have said before they passed um but it doesn't, I don't think it fully goes away. I think you just live with the pain. Yeah. And I don't know. It's okay. Like, it's just, just as there's like day and night and winter and summer, like there's emotions and there's, I don't know the reason why we have the capability to feel like intense happiness and the capability to feel intense pain. And I, don't think I'll ever get that answer, but I'm certainly okay with experiencing both because it just means I'm a human. <laughs> like that's just another part of the human experience is experiencing like deep pain. And as long as you don't, what I've, or people can do as they want with their grief. For me, I've just been trying not to hold on to any of those emotions, like experience the deep pain and let it go experience deep happiness, but also let that go too. And like, let the fluidity of those things change. And has that been um, through internalized reflection or did you reach out to say Jenny Lowanker or Brett uh, Harrington? Yeah. I mean, there's a, unfortunately a pretty large group of specifically women, but there are some men in there as well that have gone through this specifically with like mountain deaths Brett Harrington climbing or skiing I mean a good girlfriend just lost her partner like three days ago and it's crazy because that day wrecked me I mean because you know how much pain she's in and you know what the path ahead of her is going to be like and you know yeah I know she doesn't know she doesn't know I mean and she has an idea because she one of her close friends she was side by side with when it happens Mm -hmm. and she's you know, to her credit, she's also been in this community mm-hmm. um, for 15 plus years yeah. and has had other friends pass away. But this, in this yeah. particular case, this was her boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. And like, I, I mean, like I said before, I had lost nine people within that year and a half of David dying and I didn't know how painful it could be. I had no idea. And I don't think I could even find a way to express it for someone to know. It's something that like, if you've gone through it, you know, and if you haven't, you like when it's your person like david was like there's so many layers of why it makes it so hard but if it's the person that you love the most that you found and was like your other half like if that pain is excruciating and so did some of these reflections come via other women in your community who've Yeah, I mean, they've been a support... I think the women have been a support system when I need to talk about stuff that's so socially unacceptable. (laughs) Unaccepted. (laughs) Like the weird dreams that you have or like just the weird experiences that happen or 
you know, like I couldn't eat for 10 days. I like physically could not eat. I thank God for like tea and milk because that was all I could actually get down. And like being able to talk to someone of being like, is this okay? That's way more helpful for me and having someone that I know who's gone through it and asking like, or what happens? Like, I don't know when you have to do this first thing, like what's the first birthday? Like what's the first like anniversary of the year? being able to have that support system of people that have gone through it. But I would say a lot of it has been, I'm an internal processor and I always have been. And like the time in Austria has been really powerful for me because I got to step away from the community that I love here in Jackson and feel so supported by, but I kind of needed to lick my own wounds and that's how I tend to deal with things anyways. And so that means skiing with his ski partners, climbing in the mountains with his ski partners in his home mountain range, yeah. being in his physical space mm-hmm. within proximity to his family. Yeah. And spent, and I spent a lot of time alone and that at first was scary, but then there's a like strength that comes from going through this where you realize like, Oh, I, I can take care of myself and I can survive this. And I'm really glad because David and I talked about it because we were talking about when we wanted to have kids. So we had like a very honest discussion about loss and really thankful that we did because he knew that entering a relationship with me, the consequences, one of either one of us could potentially die from our job and what we love to do. And so like sometimes it's just his vote of confidence that I would be okay is super helpful. And I can access that when I'm alone. Like I can access our conversations when I'm alone. And that's part of uh, the, did you make your bed? Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> he, he had buttoned that up Yeah, and, and at least prepped you for, you know, the acknowledgement that this could occur. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like also prepped you, uh, that he might have to deal with it mm-hmm. if you didn't survive a yeah. You know, a and I accident. think it was kind of an interesting growing process for him because he had always his past relationships. He was always the adventurer and the athlete, and he was always gone. And it's very different when you're the one leaving and you're the one in control of the choices you're making. And when you're the partner to someone who's making these choices, it's hard. Like I've been on both sides. And it was interesting, like I remember one day I was out shooting in Canada and we came back really late, like six or seven, and he freaked out. (laughs) He was like, oh my gosh, now I know what this feels like. And yeah, that was like an interesting learning process, I think, for him as well. And for me, yeah, you just learn how to, yeah, make your bed. And I've noticed you you have... Uh, well, you physically isolated yourself from this community, and then you know we're not ones to call each other and talk on the phone <laughs> like this for two hours. Yeah. Um, but by being there and isolating yourself somewhat, it also sounds like you found some emotional independence. Mm-hmm. Um, is that right? I think I've always been that way. I think I've kind of moved through life on my own in a a big way, like even within my family and with the friend groups that I've always had, I've always felt a little bit like a 
lone wolf in a really supportive community. Like I love my friends. I love Jackson. I love Austria. Like I love my parents and my family. And But I've always felt like just a you little did. bit you independent. Did to go to bed at like 8 p.m. <laughs> yeah, I think. <laughs> and get up at 5 to check the avalanche forecast. Yeah. That, that is different for sure. Yeah, I <laughs> just do things my own way. And I think that's part of the reason why I love David so much is finding someone that also knew because we both knew ourselves so well we were able to like explore the world together and explore these big like conversations because we kind of know ourselves and i kind of have always felt pretty strong about knowing what i want to do and even within grief and loss like i'm pretty aware of what makes me feel good and what doesn't make me feel good <laughs> and there's like strength in that. What other, um, I mean, I think we're, uh, organically sort of reaching a closure, but, um, for this conversation, but what other sort of like, I guess, takeaways from the growth, if you can call it growth that you've experienced in the last year and a half, mm. can you share? I just think my, eyes have been open to the human experience that they weren't before and all the little mysterious things that happen and the little beautiful moments and and sometimes it's exhausting to be in like this constant existential crisis but it's also quite fun to think like what is life like what's the purpose and to be thinking about those questions has been really powerful and I like that. I mean, I think that there's no answer to any of them, but I like living them, like living out the questions and yeah. And are, you, are you doing that by, walking alone by journaling by um, all of the walking alone walking with people i do spend a lot of time with people and reach out and call i write a lot i think writing for me is like my brain's way of creating order out of mm. disorder and that's super helpful and yeah i guess I don't know, I guess in the end, like you just learn how, I mean, this word is so like overpressurized and watered down, but I think love is like the most beautiful aspect of being a human. And the love I feel like for David and from David, even with his loss, from my friends and family here and from his friends and family is overwhelming and it's beautiful. And for me trying to find a way that more people get to experience that is kind of what drives me in life and what I hope people like pull from being around me is that's like the best part of being a human I think and that's the part that makes me really sad is how many people must be so like I remember going back to the coronavirus like listening to the news the other morning and there was some doctor doctor in quotes who knows what he's actually a doctor of saying like oh we need to like the future is going to look like everyone's working remotely 
you shouldn't let your kids wrestle with each other. Like, don't hug so much. Like, don't handshake so much. And you're just like, no, 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 no. Like, you're taking away part of the most beautiful part about being a human is like that connection we have with each other and the fact that we can love each other or hate each other and have emotions towards one another. And like, we don't need to isolate ourselves further. Like, I feel like technology is already doing a damn good job at isolating humans and like what I push for is people just being more open and spending more time with each other and that's the other beautiful part about Europe is I just feel like you know you sit down and have coffee with people and like actually have coffee with them and cake every afternoon and take an hour and take an hour and it's not even at a coffee shop usually it's at someone's home like you're opening up your private personal space to someone and looking them in the eye and talking to them and like I don't see that happening as much here yeah so (laughs) eat more cake (laughs) and keep traveling yeah well thank you for taking uh, this hour plus and sitting with me in person and looking me in the eye (laughs) Um, I wasn't sure if we were both going to be teary eyed the whole time but um, I got a number of good takeaways from this so thank you for sharing yeah thanks for having me (laughs) 